Hi, everyone, and welcome again to another uh, podcast and YouTube video uh, on Gaudi Mitzvah 22. As I've said before, you can get the uh, obviously on YouTube. The podcast can be gotten on Spotify, Apple and Amazon Music. Uh, the podcast is really doing well. The statistics look good. So thank you to all of my uh, listeners for downloading all them their podcasts. Uh, once again, I have a great guest today, just a single guest. Yesterday, I interviewed Rachel Coleman, Rodney Hauser and Adrian Walker on the question of the historical mediation of being. I noticed after I posted that today, I lost like five subscribers. I don't know. It's 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 a strange, strange thing. Sometimes uh, it has you, you post something that is against the traditionalists and you pick up 10 subscribers and you lose 10. And then you go against the progressives and you pick up 10 subscribers and you lose 10. So I think the problem is resource mont communio theologians like you and me, we don't fit into any groove in any political category. And, and so uh, I don't know, sometimes maybe it's just because people don't like getting barraged with emails about, hey, here's the latest on the blog. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, I'm talking today with Dr. Michael Taylor. Uh, Dr. Taylor is uh What's the official thing? I just read it is teaching fellow and dean of students at Thomas More College of Liberal Arts in Merrimack, New Hampshire. Have you been there two years now or is this your first year? This is my second year. Yeah, your second year there. Oh, you're you're already a veteran. And uh, apparently, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're 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 an old timer already. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we can talk a little bit about uh, Catholic education today, too. I wouldn't mind doing that. It's one of my interests of late. So anyway, um, uh, Michael uh, turned his dissertation first up in, into a book. We're not going to talk at length about, about his book today. Give the exact title of your book. I had it here before me and now yeah. I've misplaced it someplace. What's the title well, of the book? It, yeah, it's your book too. It is. Here it is. Um, Show it to everyone. The, yeah. the Foundations of Nature, Metaphysics of Gift for an Integral Ecological Ethic. So yeah, there we that's go. the book. You may notice um, on the bottom, we've got Forward by Larry Chapp. Um, <laughs> so very oh, yeah. happy for that collaboration. Written but, many, many moons ago. That was your doctoral dissertation, right? And it was turned into yeah. a book. And you can highlight it right up there. It's right yeah. up my alley because uh, I guess it's one of the reasons why it was okay for me to write the forward. I did my doctoral dissertation on essentially the the ontology metaphysics uh, of creation and, and revelation that flows out of Balthazar's Trinitarian metaphysics, a lot of stuff in volumes four and five of the theological aesthetics, where he traces the history of metaphysics, as you well know. So uh, your book there is near and dear to my heart. And but today we're, we're going to not be discussing the book, although it might come up in the last issue of Comunio International Catholic Review. Uh, you know, I'm an editorial consultant for this lovely journal, although I have not been consulted in a very long time. I don't I don't know why I just haven't. Uh, it's called simply the, the theme this time is the flesh, the flesh. And Michael, Dr. Taylor here has an article in here that I, I very much liked called Riveted with Faith Unto Your Flesh, Technology's Flight from Actuality and the Word Made Flesh. Technology's Flight from Actuality. That is an apt, I think, way of describing what I think is the fundamental insight of the article is that modern day technology 
represents a kind of Gnostic return, and it kind of represents a flight from reality, a flight from the flesh, a flight from materiality. So perhaps uh, before we get too deeply into this, for the listeners and the viewers, in a minute or so or less or however long you want to take, maybe you could just sort of nutshell the fundamental argument that you are making in this article. What's what's the article about and sort of what's, what? why did you write it? What motivated you and what's your central insight that you're trying to get across? Yeah, well, I mean, coming off of the book, obviously, we, refl- we reflect in there um, a lot about technology and you know how that relates to our metaphysical um, view of the world. And the question always comes up, well, you know, is all technology bad? And of course, you'd have to say no. So I think a really pertinent question that everybody's struggling with today um, is, well, what is the criteria for good technology, bad technology? But um, the, the, the article was a bit of an assignment. I got the invitation. Very, very proud um, and honored to be invited to contribute to Communio. Communio and the, you know, the issue being on the flesh, I was, I was asked to write about technology and Gnosticism. So I just let that Stu, um, very grateful to, to the editors of, you know, giving um, me plenty of time to work on this. And I, uh, teaching up here at Thomas More College in a great books program, um, have the privilege of teaching um, The Merchant of Venice. And, you know, that has that great bit yeah, about yeah. Um, the pound of flesh and all that. So I take, I kind of pick up on that and use that. Um, yeah, the first a, two or three pages model. of the article are all about The Merchant of Venice, the great character of Shylock. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One of Shakespeare's yeah. greatest plays, if you ask me. So I was so happy that you started with The, the Merchant of Venice. But anyway, I yeah. interrupted. Go, yeah. go ahead. No, go that's ahead. fine. I, and I, I found that um, that play incredibly insightful in terms of, you know, this the birth of this modern ontology and the, and the point that Shakespeare is trying to make, fit, uh, trying to make fit perfectly with um, the points that I wanted to make um, about technology and this this Gnostic flight from reality. Um, so, you know, basically in general, the article traces, um, you know, very simply the idea of ties together the ideas of usury, um, pulling on, you know, Shylock, of course, um, violence and Gnosticism, and kind of shows how, how those three are connected and relates them um, to money, first of all, money as a kind of technology and technology in general, and then comes into a commentary on um, modern technology and digital technology, virtual reality, and the kind of transhuman impulse that everybody um, nowadays seems to be entranced by and um, all of the consequences of that and then different variations in how people are trying to understand um, our relationship with technology today and why those ultimately fail and ultimately the only answer to these questions um, that technology brings up is, is Christ and is the incarnation. Um, and I do try to um, answer that question of what is, what is the criteria by which we can understand when technology is uh, hurting us and when it's helpful. Um, and to just kind of encapsulate that, put that in a nutshell, I think that it has everything to do with um, you know, technology, you would, I think you have to put on a kind of spectrum um, based on, you know, in relation to the naturalness of the potentiality that that technology draws out, especially with regards to human nature. And I think this is something that Tolkien saw perfectly. Um, This is why he has Gandalf 
um, you know, bringing out the potentiality in the people and the things um, in Middle Earth and why Saruman is the one who's just twisting nature. So um, good technology is that kind of bringing out of, of the, the potentiality of things, a kind of extending of human potentiality, um, you know, like a hammer. Oh and, gosh, I, w I was just going to bring up a hammer. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. We'd, you'd, you'd, uh, you'd be hard pressed to convince anybody that a hammer is bad, you know, especially, you know, the having a bloody fist trying to, you know, put a nail into a piece of wood. Um, so I think a lot <laughs> yeah. of, I think a lot of people struggle with the question of, well, what's good technology and what's bad. Um, you know, we're using the internet, we're using lots of technology right here. Um, but it doesn't mean the, the, the common answer is, well, every technology is just neutral. We just have to give in and say technology is just neutral and it depends on how you use it. And that seems like a reasonable answer, but um, I'll ultimately, ultimately say that it's not. Um, and if the technology does have its own ontology necessarily, that neutrality is one of these modern myths that we um, delude ourselves into believing. But we have to be aware of the ontology of a thing, um, but it doesn't mean that we can't um, use the Internet for good as you often do so yeah that's i'm 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 in a bit of a bind because i'm a complete luddite right uh i and i don't just say that to be false mm -hmm. self false self-deprecation i'm a i'm a proud luddite uh in the sense that i use the internet reluctantly because yeah. i don't th you know it's it's i just feel that you know we have to occupy social media we have to occupy this realm of the internet with with sound catholic voices because if we don't somebody else will so this this brings uh, up a point here I, I, it's a related point to the one you're making which and i want to come back to the one you're making which which is this distinction between different kinds of technology technologies that fulfill nature and 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 sort of extend it properly and technologies that in a sense abstract from nature go beyond nature and then have a rebound effect sort of destroying nature but the related question would be um exactly here here we are on the internet here i am making a youtube video i consider youtube actually to be evil uh you know and maybe they're going to throw every one of my videos off of youtube now for me saying this you know that uh, and, and all of that uh and yet here i'm using it and it's the same way i feel about cell phones uh, in some ways, they're they're a, a blessing. You know, you get into a your car breaks down. You, you don't have to walk five miles to the nearest phone, that kind of thing. But the point is, I resisted having a cell phone for a very long time uh, so because I did not want that for reasons I, I, I really don't want to go into right now. Take us too far afield. But the point is, uh, eventually, I felt forced to have uh, a cell phone just as for the longest time I resisted having email. Uh, I, I felt I just felt like, well, if people want to get a hold of me, they can write me a letter or they can call me on the old fashioned telephone landline. Uh, why do I have to? But eventually, because of my job. And so I had to get email. I had to get a cell phone. And so now here I am. You have to use the Internet. So there's uh, a sense in which technology also creates a matrix, a web, almost like a spider's web that ensnares us within its internal matrix, within its logic which then does it not then impose upon us the very ontology, false ontology uh, that you're talking about. So how, how in a sense, and I, we're getting way ahead of ourselves here, but it's a question that sort of raced through my brain when you were talking, how in a sense do we, do we resist 
this false ontology that we're almost forced to participate in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, there, I think everything you said is true. I mean, if we were to want to avoid using the internet, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Lots of good things wouldn't happen. Um, lots of wonderful people wouldn't be hearing your, your voice. Um, so I think you can, the only way to preserve the, those goods is to be aware of the fact that the internet is not neutral, right? And not to be right. sucked right. in into the, the, the illusion of thinking that it is. Um, and so kind of always having an agere contra uh, approach to, to not normalizing this, but always, um, you always have to privilege that which is normal, that which is natural, and that which is human, which is real relations, you know, meeting in person. And the, the real problem would come when a person would start to think, well, you know, it, we might as well just, you know, do this online, even though, you know, you're right down the street, and we could do this in person, let's just do it online. It's, it's all the same. You know, it's certainly not. So I think, I think as long as you're aware of that, and constantly reinforcing yeah. Um, the true order of reality in your in your personal life um, that these sorts of exceptions can be made as long as you don't think that they're you know as long as they don't become the the rule and you know here at at Thomas More we um, we are actually a very luddite school we do not have any technology in the classrooms um, we don't even have whiteboards which I'm very grateful for yes uh, so yes. we just have chalkboards and I think yes um, it's that ought to be the standard. And, and because um, that's the situation here, I always feel a little bit weird when I go to another institution and, you know, there's plugs and wires coming out of everything and, you know, projector lowering from the ceiling and I feel like I'm in the matrix, but it's just normal. And I think most people are just completely used to that. Oh, central air, of course. Well, you know, I'm sitting right now in a farmhouse that was built in 1726. Um, and, you know, it's, it's very nice. I mean, it's a, it's a privilege. Um, but just to be reminded that of, of, you know, that those things are not the norm, you know? Yeah. 1726, which is why in those days they built homes with high ceilings and big windows uh, yeah. in, order, in order for the heat to rise and fresh air to come in. All right. So, yeah. Okay. So obviously we can talk a bit more about some of the practical stuff later on. I always sometimes hate it when people say, okay, Mr. Smarty Pants, how do we avoid all this kind of stuff? Uh, and, and the answer is sometimes you can't. But anyway, I'm going to come back to to what you sort of opened with, uh, which which is the Merchant of Venice and mm -hmm. the character, the, the issue of usury, uh, you know, making money off of money, which, of mm -hmm. course, the church at one time condemned uh, and mm -hmm. so on. Uh, so walk us through that a little bit. You said that money is a kind of technology, and I think that's really, really interesting because everything in our culture today is monetized and increasingly monetized and digitized with those two things. It's almost, when's the, I can't remember the last time I actually had actual cash in my wallet. Uh, it, it's just, everything is digitized. Did you pay with Apple wallet and Apple pay and all that kind of stuff? Uh, you never actually see real money anymore. So now it's monetized and digitized, but back in Shakespeare's day, right? It was gold coins, silver coins. Uh, things were a little bit, perhaps simpler, more direct. Uh, but what, what do you mean that money is a technology? And yeah. why, why is it that money then, say in Shakespeare's time, we can go all the way back to the Romans, but let's start with Shakespeare's time. Why is it that money for you represents uh, a sort of first step towards a kind of 
false Gnostic under flight, technological yeah. flight from reality. That's the key yeah. here. That technology yeah. takes us from reality. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, let me just take it a step further and just point out. Um, and the first time I realized this, uh, it was quite, quite shocking, but um, writing is a technology, right? Yes. Writing things down is a technology. And, um, you know, really interesting example of Plato there. Everything is a dialogue for him. You know, human connection, working things out in community together, um, and yet he says, "I'm going to use this technology. You know, it's going to be defenseless. Um, it's going to be twisted, uh, but I've got to do it. I've got to got to put it out there, and I'm going to use it to the best of my ability, but still recognizing that it's a technology, right?" Um, so that's just a really interesting thing to think about. I mean, that was a big debate back in the time yeah. of, the, of the shift from oral to written cultures. Or sure. What are you what are you losing when you start to write stuff down instead yeah. of I mean, it was it was considered an inferior way of communicating mm -hmm. to write things down over over the passing of oral traditions and oral yeah. education. And it is, you know, and I, and I think that's why um, this is good. And, you know, we always have to privilege the conversation, the encounter, um, working ideas out together. Um, and so, you know, and then, and then you walk that forward, you know, through time and you've got, well, you know, books used to be written, you know, written out by hand and, you know, now they're printed on a printing press. Now you're reading it on your Kindle, you know, so there are many layers to this, but just to get back to your question on money, um, you know, the, the baseline, um, should must always be reality, the givenness of reality. So, um, what is money, right? Money, you know, obviously the, the first thing, the first thing you think of is some sort of gold coins, but, um, gold is valuable to human beings, not as money, but because it's shiny, because it's rare, because it's malleable, because you can use it, you know, as a sign of honor, status, jewelry, whatever, um, turning gold then into a gold coin is a kind of first line of abstraction from its real nature. Um, but you know, that progressively increases. We used to have, then we said, well, uh, we can't just have all these gold coins around. They're too heavy. We're going to use paper money. Uh, but we were still on the gold standard until suddenly we weren't on the gold standard anymore. And so we get, uh, more and more abstracted. Now, you know, we have the situation where paper money is dirty. It might infect you. Everything needs to be contact contactless. Right. Um, yeah. and so the layers of abstraction are um, more and more. And the, the point about money is that it's, it is meant to be um, for the sake of exchange. I can't bring, you know, my 200 pounds of barley to market. So I'll bring my money. That's a little bit more manageable, a little bit easier for me. Um, and that way you don't have to bring um, your goods and we can, we can you know, manage things in this way. So notice too, that uh, the introduction of money is also to introduce a third party. In, into uh, economic transactions. You mentioned bringing, you know, used to be I could bring my 200 pounds of barley uh, over to, you know, to the market and exchange it for, you know, 10 pounds of sugar, 50 pounds of flour and, you know, and so on and so forth. So mm -hmm. it was a, a direct bartering between individuals, which was an economic transaction. Uh, and, and, but then with, with money, what you're getting then is the introduction of this, this third party, the, those who have in fact minted the money, yeah. created the money and vouchsafed in a sense, the money, which is really what we have now, because money is the piece of paper you're walking around with is, is completely 
it's, it's only worth what the paper's made out of, right? Uh, but it has value because the United States government, for example, says it has value. Yeah. We're going to ascribe yeah. this value to it. So it's, yeah. it's, a, and, it's, a, go ahead. Yeah. And, and, and they are at first, they appear in the equation as, you know, um, offering a service, right. To, to, you know, facilitate trade and, um, you know, guarantee the, the value of this money. So it money first appears in the role of a servant, um, helping facilitate this situation. Um, but what happens is that very quickly money, um, which is, you know, a kind of appearance uh, and, you know, a secondary abstract element takes on a life of its own. Um, and then, you know, people seek to um, collect as much of it. It becomes the goal of the transaction. So yeah. I think, I think the, the crucial question here is where does gain come from? Where, wh wh what is fruitfulness? Right. I mean, that's what money is is replacing. Right. Some sort of gain yeah. or fruitfulness. And I think and the point that I try to make is that true fruitfulness, true gain is only ever born of relationality, um, you know, and from the simplest things in nature, the bee in the flower, you know, honey and, you know, gets produced by the bee from the pollen. The flower produces seeds and gets those, you know, is able to reproduce that is a relationship, a natural relationship from which both parties gain. Um, and I think, you know, the, the relationality of, you know, the cobbler with the farmer is very similar in that you have these skills that I don't have, you have this land and these skills that, that the other doesn't have. And so from our encounter, from my recognizing you as, as another and as a good for me, we are both able to um, benefit and gain from this relationship. And then money steps in, um, in order to be just facilitate that, you know, facilitate, you yeah. are a good for me. Um, and, and I am a good for you. And through our mutual recognition of that fact, in reality, um, we have this fruitfulness. Now, when the abstraction of money starts to become the aim and saying, well, what can I do to make more money? Um, then suddenly gain is no longer that relationship with the other. The other becomes a means to the end of me making more money, right? Rather than money yeah. being the means to the end. So yeah. they, there's, a, there's a, a, a role reversal there that is, that is rather sinister and, and um, diabolic. Yeah, and it, it, you can see this highlighted in, in the, the change in which uh, we now say that, that, oh, that's a rich man. That's a rich dude today. What it means is that's a person with a bucket load of money. It's Warren Buffett. That's Elon Musk. These are the trillionaire billionaire tie hundreds of billions of dollars. Elon Musk. But if you go back to 2000, yeah, yeah two, 2000 years ago or even 15 or maybe just five to say that a man was wealthy was more than likely to say that he owned a lot of things, that he was a possessor of things. And the first yeah. thing he possessed was probably land and lots of it, but then also things on that land that produced fruits that people wanted sheep, yeah. goats, cattle, chickens. Uh, he, he could, you know, he could therefore uh, sell for meat. He could grow crops. He could, uh, you know, make leather goods. And 
uh, and, and that, you know, you get the point, you know, and, and it was all very tied to what still could be fruitful. Now, there was a grave injustice often involved in those who owned tons of land because it was like oftentimes it was an aristocratic inheritance and that kind of thing. And then people the paupers were sharecropping essentially on land that they didn't own all that stuff. I'm not, I'm not trying to be romanticized the past here. There were grave injustices with even with that system, but, but you're right. The point we're trying to make here, and I don't want people to lose the forest for the trees is that there's been an ever increasing abstraction. All right. From the flesh, from materiality, from the rootedness in the givenness of the structure of nature, of human nature, of the rhythms of life, of relationality and, and the giftedness that we are to one another, a gradual abstract. So we're not, we're not here romanticizing about some bucolic past like, oh, wouldn't it be great if we didn't have money anymore? Or wouldn't it be great if we didn't have this or didn't have that? We, we free you and I freely acknowledge that these are realities that are here to say, but we're pointing out is that there's been a price to pay for that and, 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 a, and a differing ontology is just as, just like a different consciousness emerges and almost a different ontology when we shifted from oral phase to a writing phase of existence. And then we, we went from the writing to the printing phase of existence. And then we went from the printing to the electronic phase of existence. And now we're in the digital phase of existence, as my friend Mark Stallman likes to point out. Um, and, and Guardini uh, was big on all you quote Guardini. But anyway, I'm, I'm talking too much. I want to I want to come back then to 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 certainly drive this home, because ultimately we're going to be making a point here about cybernetics and uh, the sort of Gnostic nature of modern technology and why it presents a danger to us, the singularity, uh, transhumanism, all that. But in order to get there, we need to talk about this, this growing abstraction, uh, this growing removal from from the concrete. Uh, so I would like you to elaborate a little bit further on what's what's the difference between different kinds of technology? Why? Because you, you, you're absolutely right. I mean, technology technology is not neutral. Uh, it carries with it uh, a kind of I think you talk about it in here, sort of um, a, a cognitive feedback mechanism. All right. That actually changes the way we think, changes the way we view the world, what the French call uh, mentalité uh, or, or, or um, what Charles Taylor calls our social imaginary. Uh, all of those things change as technology changes. So what's the difference between between a, a technology that in a sense is good and a technology that is distorting? Yeah, well, um, just just before I get to answer that question, I would just say um, on the question of usury and why that was seen as a problem, you've got to um, think about this in terms in natural terms and see that to take this um, abstraction that's only supposed to help facilitate exchange and turn it into um, supposedly a good in itself, and then for that good to reproduce on its own, so to speak, which is um, what usury does, you know, and, and so there's lots of imagery in the Merchant of Venice. It's very interesting relating that. Um, that's unnatural. So the problem with usury is that it's unnatural. And I think um, to get to the question of what technology is good and what is not, um, it also has to have the, the answer has to be founded deeply in what is natural, um, especially using human nature as the basis for that, the human being be the, being the microcosm of, of the universe. So um, the technologies that are um, 
good are the ones that are most close to nature and are um, the direct um, actualizing of natural potencies, you know, through our work. So, you know, agriculture is a kind of um, kind of technology, and but it's obviously very natural, founded in in you know bringing about those natural potencies in other things. It's the kind of net technology that enhances our natural relationships with things. Now, just because you can do it doesn't mean that it's good. And so um, there are technologies that divorce um, the natural relationship from, from, from reality. Just think of contraception or something, some technology like that, that is um, you know, absolutely a twisting of relationships, a twisting of nature. Um, so I think that has to be the criteria, but I think you could come up with a whole spectrum um, in which you can think about how close a technology is to the, the naturalness and the potentiality that it brings out, right? So Guardini's famous example of the sailboat and the motorboat, um, yeah, yeah is, is, is a good one. Doesn't mean, now it's kind of like Plato's divided line where I always have to explain to my students, you know, it's a divided line. It's not a separated line. These things are a spectrum. Plato isn't saying images are bad. He's saying images aren't the good itself. And if you don't realize that you'll get messed up. So just like, you know, it's not that motorboats are bad. It's not that the internet is bad. Um, but if you forget what the good is, if you forget what reality is and what is natural, then you're bound to get confused and, and, and you're bound to get your, your vision of reality distorted. So if you live in the internet 24 seven and that's the way you relate to people, you're gonna, the next, you know, you're gonna walk out of your parents' basement and you're never gonna be able to get a date because you're gonna be, <laughs> you're not gonna be socially adapted um, even yeah. in this world. So um, I think that's, that's the subtle thing. It's very easy to say, um, progress is bad down with technology. Um, and I do very much appreciate the Luddite, um, uh, approach to life. And I try to live it as much as possible. Um, but that also comes with a danger, which is, um, the lack of subtlety in, um, distinguishing what, what is good, right? It's just not, you know, because, you know, it doesn't mean that technology is, I think, I, I think we're all very grateful for certain things of technology, probably something related to modern medicine. I would probably be limping around with a bum knee, um, you know, if it weren't for well, modern medicine. As, so. as someone who occasionally has to use the outhouse on his farm, I would say the invention of the flush toilet is right up there and modern <laughs> and modern sewer systems. Absolutely. Yeah. But but all of that, as we you know have seen, can be very much manipulated, and especially when all of that, you know, turns into research and development trying to make profit. So um, yeah, it, yeah. I, it sounds like a very um, fuzzy answer and trying to escape the question, but I think that the, um, the importance of the question merits a subtle answer. And it is that these things are on a spectrum, but there is something solid. There is a definitive answer, which is that all of these are only good in relation to the way that they, um, we can yeah. see that they are distant or close to the truth of reality and the truth of human nature. See, I, I live on a Catholic worker farm uh, and, the, and the great visionary for the Catholic worker farm, as you know, was Peter Morin. 
And Peter Morin emphasized that the central purpose of the farm isn't to grow things. The central purpose of the farm is to act as an agronomic university, as he called it, primarily to teach people artisanal skills, uh, skills that have now been lost. Now, what, what, why did he do? Because he was a personalist. And, and, and one of the things that he understood about technology and, and Dorothy Day as well, and I think this is Guardini's insight about the sailboat, is that one of those dividing lines is that you know, the, the, I think that the better forms of technology are the kinds of technology that require from us the acquiring of skills in order to use that technology. So it's not easy to sail a boat. You have to, in a sense, learn certain certain skills to be able to sail a boat without tipping the boat over into the water yeah. because you're not tacking into the wind properly. You haven't trimmed the sails properly and, and, and you haven't set the rudder properly and so on. And, and as someone who has had a fishing boat, a motor boat before, I can tell you there's some skill involved in, in driving a motor boat, but much less than a sailboat. I, you know, I would turn the key and I had a steering wheel and it was more like driving a car than, than, than sailing, just driving a car on water. Uh, if you will. So my point is, is that there's a step down in the skill level that one has to have in order to, in a sense, master that tech. So one of the one of the things that it seems to me is, is you know, in this divided line uh, is that one of the bad things about modern technology is it becomes more and more and more removed from our own set of skills that we acquire more and more and more removed from our control so that we have to buy into an entire nexus of technologies. If you let's, let's stay with the internet uh, in, in order to use it at all. And you don't control any of those things. Just like I was worried earlier, cause I made a negative comment about YouTube. Am I, am I now going to be booted off of YouTube? Are they going to eliminate all of my YouTube stuff? Because I said something nasty about YouTube. So in many ways, this is simply out of, out of my control. All I had to learn how to do in order to do this was I had to learn how to download an app, the Zoom app, and I had to learn how to upload that to YouTube. Uh, but beyond that, there's no see you get the point I'm driving at here. Part of this greater and greater abstraction in the technology is a greater and greater removal of our own control over over the the, the, the technologies that, that we're using. And they become much more removed from us and therefore also in a scary sort of way much more amenable to being controlled by others yep. who then in very subtle ways can control us without, without we even being aware of it. And I know I'm kind of getting downstream here a little bit, but I think that too has to be spoken of here and talking about sort of good technologies versus less good. Let's put it yeah. that way. Yeah. Technologies that come with a more, a more distorting danger involved in them. And I think it has to do that. There's very little, skill sometimes that I have to, there's not much skill required in, in order to send a, a text message off of an iPhone. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting because what, what is a skill, right? A skill is a kind of relationship with reality. So just yes. to go back to the sailboat and the motorboat, um, having the skill of sailing means that you are adept at observing and understanding reality, the wind, the waves, the weather, the way those are going to interact with your, your ship, your boat. Um, and that is a very human and natural thing to do. Um, and that, that those relationships is translated into that skill, which is valuable because it can move you from one side of the lake to the other. Um, and 
that gets replaced by, well, I just buy a half gallon of gas and I put that in my motor and I just point at where I want to go and I'm there. So as we ratchet up technology, what you're, what you're losing um, is those fruitful relationships with reality that um, are your skills. So, uh, you know, take a carpenter, for example, you know, I can screw something together from Ikea, but I cannot build you a table. Um, but the, the skill of the carpenter is um, fruitful because he knows the tree, he knows the wood, he knows the way the right. grain has to flow. Um, and those skills that Peter Mormon was talking about are, are also, are, are fundamentally profound relationships with the real. Um, and that's what's being abandoned as we, as we you know, increase our, our technology. And, and the, the ontology in the technology is always, on some level, work is bad. Work, work is too hard, for, you know, yeah. And yeah. work is too hard, takes too much time. So we can invent something, some machine that will make this faster, make this easier. And so if you're always living in that paradigm of work is fundamentally a limitation on my fulfillment, um, then there's, you just take that to the extreme. There's no, no doubt that you're one day going to posit the escape from the body, right? Um, right, right. So, so there has to be, a, there, there in the um, assessment of technology, you have to be aware of, you know, it's a lot, it would be a lot of work for me to travel down to Har Harvey's Lake, down to Scranton to talk to you in person. So this is easier. You have to be aware that that aversion of work is something that you're taking on as a presupposition when you choose to use, yeah. you know, a technology over a more natural means. So you know, a, a lot of people in, you know, my part of the world up here in New Hampshire have snowblowers and I um, refuse to buy a snowblower. Thankfully, I don't have a very big driveway, and a, but I have a shovel. And, you know, I just think about, you know, what, what would my relationship with reality be if, you know, I needed a machine to, to mediate, you know, um, being able to get out of my driveway. But it's a silly example. But I think you get my point. You know, work, yeah. work is not bad. Um, and I yeah. think that's also a dangerous thought that, that crosses a lot of people's minds in a lot of different areas of the spectrum. Work is assumed to be um, a, a necessary evil by man. Yeah, which yeah. Is, and which I, is, I'd love to get your perspective on that because as, on a Catholic worker farm, I think if you thought that work was a necessary evil, you would have probably stated it to sales. I don't know. That's right. Well, work is the point on the farm. Uh, I mean, one of the, one of the things that has... Uh, emerged in the modern world with industrialization and then now corporatization and now people having jobs in cubicles and so on is that work really has become onerous work has become drudgery work has become boring precisely because it is uh, it's part of this world of abstraction called making money which is something we have to do in order to, you know those are all necessary things we have to make money in our world and go but but it, it has become a drudgery a burden a boredom it doesn't it doesn't speak to my to my inner soul, but I'm, I'm going to go back to 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 the to the question of of these uh, of the relation between technology and the development of skills. I mean, and the fulfillment that comes from mastering a skill. I had a huge uh, couple of spruce trees in front of the farm that had died. There's been a blight on spruce trees around where we are. I don't know if where you are, too. Uh, and all the spruce trees are dying. We had these giant ones, 100 yards up in the air, seriously, massive trees. We had to have them cut down. And my neighbor, 
Bob Halowich, uh, came down. He's an older guy, 72. And he says, don't you have those tree people haul that away? I said, oh, why is that? I'm going to mill that wood. He has a little sawmill. All right. And he, and he came down and he, he also, okay, he's got a piece, he's got a, like a bulldozer with a claw and he put it on his flatbed and he, and he, and he took these great big, huge logs away, but he's going to mill his own wood uh, out of, out of these spruce trees, as opposed to me, if I wanted to build something out of wood, I'd go online and order something from home Depot and then have it delivered and, and then maybe build something out of it. Uh, or maybe even buy something prefabbed and delivered rather than build something out of it. Uh, and, but Bob, Bob's going to mill his own wood and, and I've watched him do it. And, and in fact, it's, it's so rewarding when you do something like that, when you, when you master a skill, when you accomplish something on your own like that, uh, just like we on the farm, for example, we'll be sitting down to breakfast and we'll, we'll be realizing, okay, we grew those potatoes, that bacon came from our pigs, those eggs came from our chickens. And even though I could have just as easily bought all those things at the store, there was something far more richly fulfilling about eating yeah. something that we ourselves had raised or grown. Uh, and, and that's not just some sort of weird emotional thing. There was it, it's a genuine satisfaction that one gets out of out of enjoying the fruits of a skill that has been mastered. And so my question to you then uh, is, are because of now digitization and the computerization of everything, uh, the online of everything, are we now reaching a situation in which which people are becoming skillless? I know that seems like a strange question to ask. Are we becoming a helpless people lacking in some of the most basic skills? Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, You know, those descriptions of that, that, that genuine sense of pride over, you know, knowing where your things came from, even if you didn't grow them yourself, you, you might at least know the farmer down the street. If you bought, you know, your lettuce at a farmer's market. And that I think is a true expression um, that's well captured in, 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 Ulrich's concept of ontological wealth, right? There's a yeah. metaphysical richness to this thing that um, is infinitely more, even if it's more expensive and, and probably does correspond in some way to, to the monetary qual- quantitative um, degree, but that is just that qualitative um, difference is the significant difference where the quantitative is uh, merely a shadow of that. But I do think that, well, it's funny, you know, um, those who are um, Luddites, you know, they get on a computer and have no idea what's going on. So there is a certain level, you know, and, and, you know, you give a cell phone to a five-year-old and they'll figure that thing out right away and they'll, they'll know how to manage the whole thing. So there's, there are skills associated with our new technocratic society. But what's interesting is that you're, if we were talking about skills as being a relationship with the wind and the water and the weather and the wood, um, and knowing how to, um, respond, you know, how, how to bring out the natural potencies in these things. You know, the, the wind ha- is a natural potency that can, can, you know, through Bernoulli's principle, create lift and sail your boat across the ocean. Um, you are now developing skills, not with nature, but with an artifact, um, a, a technology that someone else designed. So your relationship is no longer with, with nature at all. Um, and that's the reason why it's so addictive because it's designed to be addictive by an intelligent mind that's thinking, how do I monetize 
my app, I need to make it so that you know it becomes a labyrinth that people don't ever want to leave. And so those there are there are skills involved in knowing how to manage, you know, um, you know, all your social media accounts and all this stuff. But those those relationships are are fundamentally altered, I think. So it is it is kind yeah. of sad in that way. I'm not laughing at what you said. Just what you said there that you know it takes some skills to even do the internet thing. Um, because there there are skills that still elude me. It drives my wife crazy. One of which is re- remembering any of the eight hundred passwords that <laughs> for for Google this or you know yeah. Zoom that. And of course, it, then if you have standard ones that you use over and over, because, so that you can remember them, uh, then of course the websites will say, well, you can't use that because you use it over here. So pick a different one. So you pick a different one. That's a slight variation on that one. And you probably, so the point is you had better write all of that down somewhere, but then you lose wherever the heck you wrote it down <laughs> or you forget to write one thing down. You know, you get my point. So um, yeah, there are some skills. There are some skills involved uh, even, even in doing the internet, but uh, I'm going to come then back the, 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 one of the one of the reasons why this is so very important, what we're discussing here to some people, I hope I hope they're not taking this conversation as simply, a, you know, a couple of agrarian romantics or something longing for for, for a happier, simpler time, because that's not it at all. Uh, what we're really arguing here, what your article's about and spells out beautifully is that modern technology has changed our ontology, our metaphysic, our, our way of viewing uh, existence, which means it has changed our way of viewing ourselves because we too are material beings. You know, uh, we too, we, we live, <laughs> sound like Madonna. We live in a material world. All right. We, when we're material beings, we're beings of flesh. That's what this whole thing is about. And, and there is an ontology and metaphysic that that's implied in the Christian evangel about rooted in the incarnation of God in this flesh, which takes human, not just human nature in the abstract up into the Godhead, but our very fleshiness is taken up in, 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 into the Godhead. The world isn't going to be destroyed. It's going to be transformed and lifted up in a kind of resurrection. That's the Christian ontology, which is relational, transformative, and so on. Whereas the modern ontology is to treat all of this material substrate as metaphysically flat. There's, it's almost an anti-ontology, an anti-metaphysic. There is no, of course, that is in itself a metaphysic. They just don't realize it. But it, everything is just matter. It's just matter all the way down. We're just a, a concentrated bits of matter organized in a certain way. Ultimately, it's, it's fundamentally meaningless, fundamentally pointless, no teleology, no endpoint. You get my point. So if that's true, then that's all we are. Then we, too, are open to technological manipulation uh, at, at the most fundamental levels of human nature. I mean, the modern technology sort of implies that there is no human nature, at least nothing that's normative and nothing that's stable. Everything is in flux because matter is always in flux. And so we can do with our bodies cybernetically, genetically, whatever we damn well decide to do, which in our culture means the corporate world is going to do it. The government's going to do it. Uh, powerful, rich people are going to do it. We have to do it because if we don't, the Chinese will. Uh, and, and so there is this sort of technological imperative. What, what can be done will be done. 
And that's the kind of scary thing here. So maybe you could, because you you mentioned this, you talk about transhumanism uh, in the article, which I think is an absolutely critical point. So go ahead, yeah. Michael. Um, yeah, there's a lot in there. I think that you've got to recognize first and foremost, the modern um, division between truth and goodness, right? So truth and um, truth is fundamentally somehow um, neutral and the question of goodness is the subjective element and those two are separated and that that is a, that in itself is a rupture in the very understanding of the human intellect the human soul in which goodness and truth you know the the are, are united the will is part of the intellect according to aquinas um, the intellectual appetite and so the modern division between truth and goodness suddenly makes it you um, have this you know, bifurcated vision of reality where, you know, truth is just information that's neutral um, that you can use for science. And that's, you know, and then the will is on its own and it decides what it wants to do. And so technology and, and money and everything else becomes this indeterminate power um, to augment the modern notion of freedom. So I can do whatever I want. Right. Technology is there for me to be able to do whatever I want. And um, it is this kind of schizophrenic view of matter, because on the one hand, matter and corporeality can give me pleasure and people like that, but it also limits me. And so you get this, um, these, you know, transhuman hopes of, well, you know, and, and an analogy with information and matter where they start to believe that, well, information, information starts to replace the spiritual dimension of reality, um, and and the the substrate, the matter, the computers, whatever, are just kind of um, unnecessary, um, you know, because those can be those can change. Everything's in the cloud now. That information is what what is where the where the truth is, and that mirrors almost perfectly this kind of neo gnosticism, where the spiritual is the good, the body is this dross to be left behind. Um, and it's kind of like Tesla with his idea of, you know, wireless energy transfer. Um, you know, if we could just do away altogether with these wires, if we could just do away altogether with this matter, then we'll finally overcome the only limitations on our freedom, which, which are the body, right? And now, how does that compare to the Christian worldview? Well, I think we all recognize the limitations of the body, and we all, all want to overcome the limitation of death. The question is, how are you going to do that? And the way you do that um, is radically different between the modern approach and the, and the Catholic approach. And, um, you know, I think in the case of the, the technophile who wants to upload his consciousness into the cloud, um, and, uh, and achieve some, you know, um, simulacra of, um, immortality is this diabolic, you know, inversion of Christ's redemption. And, and so you, you see how twisted really is. that is. And, and, you know, the true path to that freedom, and, and, and it's important to recognize these, you know, uh, transhumanists and others, um, their intuition and desire, we can understand. We too, um, you know, all of nature is groaning in travail. Um, you know, the question yeah. is, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to try to take power into your own hands and try to achieve your own twisted redemption somehow by trying to extend your life. I mean, at the end of the day, it's just very tragic. Or are you going to 
pass through the narrow gate of death and accept death and accept the flesh as the, you know, the flesh really is the cross, um, you know, and accept the flesh and accept death and pass through that gate in order to receive, you know, eternal life. And I think, so I think there's a great potential for converting these people if they could only see, bless you, the the yeah, truth in that and, and 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 see that their longings have an answer not in their own powers not in the powers of technology but but in the promises of of, of christ so i think that is real that's that's a beautiful way of putting it this this distinction between uh a, a spiritual ontology and certainly a, a christian one that is also incarnational and the modern ontology which which really is in many 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 ways a lot of modern technology is in a subterranean way a, a thirsting after and a questing after a kind of false immortality yeah. of some kind it really really is i mean you see this in the cult of youth you know, uh, you see this in, in the med- every day you're bombarded if you're on social media, like Facebook with ads saying, you know, this this supplement is shown to add 30 seconds to your life or this. You know, uh, if, if you just do this, take these magic. I saw one the other day, magic beet pills, where it's distilled all the beautiful essence of a beet down yeah. into a pill that you can take, which is apparently going to grow hair on my head again or something. <laughs> uh, uh, but you, you get the point now. Yeah. Um, the thing that I've never understood about, uh, in some ways, uh, this notion, and, and you hear people, there are, I mean, this is not make-believe. There are people who are talking about this, of when we reach a level of sophistication in uh, artificial intelligence, uh, maybe 100 years from now, 50 years from now, whatever, I think they call it the singularity, where you, you finally can create a computer that perfectly imitates the human brain, is just as sophisticated in its intricacies as the human brain. Uh, and if you can then download, in a sense, decode your own consciousness, download it onto a computer chip, put it into this AI, that somehow or another, I am now immortal, that I will live on. And yet you're running smack dab into the identity problem here, which is you can build a perfect imitation of your brain in a computer and you can download all of your sort of memories into a computer chip and so forth and put them into that computer. It's not going to be you. Yeah. Uh, well, and, and I would, and I would just say, you know, that's, I mean, it's, it's not, it shouldn't be limited to a question of, is this possible or is this not possible? Um, first of all, just to, to, in order to think that it's even possible, you already have to commit right, a violence right, against right. who you are. That's so that's tremendous right. that, you know, yeah. it's not even worth arguing, but yeah. all I am is a machine. And now if I just build another machine that kind of imitates me, then me, the machine can live on in this other machine kind of a thing. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's deeply, it's deeply troubling on a variety of And now, of course, there's genetic manipulation uh, <clears throat> with the advance of what's called CRISPR technology, C-R-I-S-P-R, which is an acronym for something I can't remember anymore, which is essentially a very, very, very sophisticated technology for gene splicing. Uh, Once again, this shows in some sense the ambivalence of technology that can it can be good. I mean, one of the original purposes of CRISPR technology was to, in a sense, gene edit in a way that could help people 
uh, that are born with genetic defects that, that, you know, affect them greatly. And, and any parent of a child that's born with a severe genetic defect of some kind, uh, you know, like say cystic fibrosis, uh, if, if I could go in and use CRISPR technology and fix the gene that causes cystic fibrosis and cure a child of cystic fibrosis, my goodness, that would, that would be absolutely stunningly wonderful. Um, but it's also a technology that can be used. I mean, you, you can make designer kids eventually in, in, uh, in artificial wombs. Uh, you can order your child out of a catalog and say, I, I want a kid, I want a child with a brain twice the size of the normal one. And, 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 you know, and so on, you get the point. So yeah, I, go ahead. I think all, I think all of those things are just, um, if you lose sight of the of of the relative goodness of death you are going to run into trouble right i mean you will not understand human suffering you'll see no use for it um and that's why the christian message is so important um today because we cannot escape suffering and we're going to keep trying and just find ourselves even more frustrated and, and even more alienated and suffering even more. So um, it, it is important, you know, medicine is a very noble thing and we should try to, to, to seek to overcome unnecessary suffering while at the same time always accepting the reality of our mortality. And, you know, and, and that is a hard um, yeah, yeah. juxtaposition to live out. But I think that everything, you know, there's nothing new under the sun and all of this is just simply, um, you know, comes from an unwillingness and, and a rejection of death, which is very human and I think is very yeah, yeah. noble in a sense and true. You know, we, on, we have some sort of um, spiritual sense that, that life is meant to go on, and, and that's not wrong. This is a beautiful point, and I'm glad, it was a point that I wanted to bring up, and it sort of slipped my mind, so I'm glad that you brought it up which is that in many, many, many ways, all of this questing after a kind of techno immortality really is in some ways a backhanded affirmation of the truth of so many of not just Christianity, of the religious traditions of the world, that death is not meant to be our natural end, our state. There's something beyond it. Uh, and it is something that uh, we are right in some sense, to to fear, because it, it is an, un, an unnatural cessation of one form of life, the only form of life we've known, uh, not unnatural, it's natural, but you, you get my point, it seems unnatural to us. And that, that's the point. Um, and, and so what it does is this, it gives the lie to a certain modern kind of atheist agnostic, who wants to appear very sophisticated, and wants to appear as if death is no big deal to them. Oh, in other words, that it's somehow an inferior state of human consciousness and an immature intellectual and moral response to existence, to fear death, to seek to overcome death. And we, the true Illuminati, have overcome this fear in a pseudo sophisticated, pseudo enlightened kind of way. Uh, and the fact of the matter is 99.9% .9 of human beings know that that's risible nonsense. Um, we wouldn't have modern medicine were it, were it not for that for that very, that very true fear of death. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, it, it's sad because, you know, it's true that, um, life must go on, um, that life is yeah. that we, that we have somewhere deep down know that it must go on, but what you get, um, if you 
from the outset throw out the giftedness of reality and you assume that responsibility um, to your to yourself to your own um, freedom and ingenuity to develop your own afterlife um, it suddenly becomes very dark um, very twisted um, yeah, yeah. And, and and diabolical you you try to become your own savior um, so it's it's brutal and it has a distorting effect all the way down the chain of our existence uh, when you have this dark and dour view of death mm -hmm. is simply annihilation and the and the end. I mean, St. Paul, St. Paul is very, very clear. I mean, when you read St. Paul talking about the resurrection in Corinthians, when he says, you know, oh, death, where is thy sting? And so on. What yeah. Paul is clearly saying is, is that the regime of sin is directly linked to the regime of death. And not just because sin leads to death, but because the the, the knowledge that we're going to die has a rebound effect on us that makes us sin, that locks us into this depressive, self-destructing way of acting that we call sin, because the mark of death hangs over us like this horrible pall, and it distorts. And so St. Paul is saying, because of the resurrection of Christ, death doesn't have that sting anymore. Death doesn't have that. It, this is why the resurrection is so liberating, even in the here and now. Yeah. Right. And, and th this this is an absolutely key part. But also then this regime of death, this regime of a very dour view of death and, and the desire to overcome death and a kind of techno immortality. I would say this, that it also has this has political consequences uh, in the modern and by politics. I mean, what ordinary use of the word politics in the modern world, you know, governments, voting, yeah. constitutions, you know, sure. all that, kind, all that kind of courts, all that kind of crap. Um, I don't mean politics in the broader sort of classic sense. Uh, so it has these political connotations because you combine the technocratic society with the modern state and you combine this materialistic view of life with a very dour tragic view of life and death. This then empowers, empowers the powerful elites of our society, the corporate world, the government world, the military world, to in a sense exert in the name of exigencies, a certain control over us now that that is unparalleled in the history of the human race. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Foucault in this regard and his, you know, um, biopolitics and disciplinary matrixes is on point as a critique. And it's just interesting. You think back to the early Christians, you know, the worst thing that the Romans had to, had to offer was, you know, death by lions or on the cross or whatever it may be. And suddenly you have a people who are not afraid of death and, you know, Romans are just like, well, I don't what do you really do with this? What, what else to do? Um, but, yeah, the, the control over life in, in you know, modern society has reached a level that that we've never. Before well, seen. yeah, I mean, you saw this in the response to the covid pandemic, and I, I don't want to get into conspiracy theories. Or, I mean, it's just also confusing. Right. I mean, the energy oh. department comes out the other day or, you know, it may have come from the Wuhan lab. Who knows? You know, it's, it's to me, that doesn't it, it's neither here nor there. The interesting thing to me, it really shocked me, but shocked me more than anything was here in my home state of Pennsylvania. I never realized before, and I'm not just saying this is not sort of false something or other. I, I, I never actually realized before that the governor of the state of Pennsylvania had the authority, had the authority with the stroke of a pen to 
close everything in the state, mm-hmm. every business, every school, right? Everything, yeah. every, every social, ga- every large social gathering, every sporting event, every entertainment event. It didn't matter. He had the power because all he had to do was declare a health emergency. That's all he had to do. I'm declaring a health emergency because and, and, and look laden in there and other and people have noted this is, well, there is this this absolute fear of death as the ultimate evil mm-hmm. in, in, yeah. in those in those very draconian lockdowns that we that we had to undergo that the, the worst thing that could possibly happen to you isn't that your three year old now has to wear a mask you know, in, 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 in preschool or what, if there is even preschool, our churches were shut down, sacraments, were, everything was yeah. shut down. Okay. All because of this fear of this disease that had about a 3% lethality rate w- w- when it came out, but apparently 3% was, was too high a risk. Now, I, like I said, I don't want to get bogged down in the politics of COVID, but what struck me, what really struck me was the absolute suspension of every civil liberty that Americans supposedly have as, as soon as a health emergency is declared, apparently the Constitution goes out the window. Yeah, well, it is, you know, a testament to the fact that um, even to this day, you know, life is deemed a good, supposedly. But it's interesting how that is twisted as well, because I think that like the flesh, um, life is only as good as what you can offer it for, um, in the sense that um, we you know, we're all, you know, Catholics are pro-life, um, but not because, you know, we put life um, above everything else, but because if you aren't pro-life, then you cannot offer your life for others. You cannot sacrifice yeah. your life yeah. for others. Um, and so, and I think in the same way to bring it back to the flesh a little bit, um, the, the interesting thing about, you know, Antonio in the Merchant of Venice is that because he's so immersed in his mercantile world um, of money and, and, and shipping and um, fungibility, that he, he, in a sense, confuses the flesh as you know, something else that can just be used is fungibly um, yeah. translatable yeah. Into, in, in, for exchange. And the flesh is one of those things that I think Shakespeare is making a point of that fundamentally is not fungible. In this world of fungibility and fluidity, um, the flesh is not um, fungible, but is the very condition of possibility for um, right, love right. and other things. And the other, the other two elements that I think Shakespeare brings out in the play um, are um, fidelity. So we've got a situation with a ring towards the end of the play, um, and um, and this this um, honor that, that that is associated yeah. with that. Yeah. So. That's true. And I, I, I want to be very, very clear that I'm not trying to say that it was wrong for people to be concerned about spreading COVID. I had COVID. It was nasty. Yeah. I don't yeah. I don't will it on anybody. The well, when, was, when you're terrified of death to such an extent that it, that, it, that it becomes the most important thing, it's a, it, it does. You're right. That it does reveal that there there is no higher value, supposedly, um, than life. And I think that even pro-lifers would agree that that's not the case. Life is um, of value for us um, because it is the, the condition of possibility of becoming virtuous and gaining the eternal life, right? In the same way that yeah, the flesh ex- is exactly. the condition of possibility for gaining the resurrection. 
Exactly. So, you know, my my point is more about the infantilizing of all of us in mm-hmm. the face of the Leviathan of government, mm-hmm. which now in yeah. the name of saving us from death, the, the nanny state is going to uh, rush in and save us from ourselves by taking away every single where as opposed to a more localist response. I mean, is, is COVID the first disease that the human race yeah. has ever had to deal with? Yeah. No, well, there have yeah. been worse. There have been worse epidemics. And the fact is, people took it upon themselves to take measures, you know, to to mitigate the spread of disease yeah. and so yeah. forth. Um, anyway, I don't want and, to. And, get, it's don't, a, and it's a schizophrenic valuing of life, too, because at the same time, you know, you've got abortion, you've got the um, the dehumanization yeah. of whole swaths of people. You've got the push for euthanasia. You've got a million other things. So um, when when you when you really want right. to look at it, it's not even well, a true yeah. value valuation of of life. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, gosh, this could open up a whole different thing. It has nothing to do with your article <laughs> about the politicization well, the politicization of technology. Yeah. So you know, my thesis would be you've got. You've got fentanyl and other opioids pouring across the southern border, okay, killing far more people via overdoses and addiction than COVID did. But nobody, nobody is going to, you know, shut down the border for political reasons. Okay, this is a political football and 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 for a lot of reasons good and bad and i'm sort of pro immigration but you know that's i'm not i'm yeah. not some shut the border guy but you get the point yeah. all right so what was it about covid that was so di- well it, it was a useful tool for bringing down donald trump uh it it, it became this i mean you, it was ver- i saw people i saw people outside in a park surrounded by nobody walking their dog wearing a mask and i'm asking myself what in the hell is wrong with us yeah. Uh, it, this is virtue signaling at this point. Yeah. I'm I'm here to point out to you how responsible I'm being, which is a kind of political statement more than it is a disease statement. Uh, you're more apt to get sick by wearing a mask when you're out in the fresh air instead of breathing the fresh air. I, it, come on. Anyway, I'm I'm going way down a rabbit hole. I don't want to go down uh, because it's it's taking us too far away from your article. I, I think we've we've pretty much covered. We, we've been. Uh, We've been going now for about an hour and 15 minutes. So maybe we should. Yeah, we should uh, wrap this up. Uh, Obviously, we could talk and talk and talk about the ontology that's Mm -hmm. embedded in here, the Trinitarian metaphysics, all that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, I I think. Are there any last sort of insights that you want to toss out there before we sign Um, off? Yeah, well, I just I guess I would just. make a little plug for my book. And as far as, you know, this ontological vision, um, yes, of, of reality is what is at stake. And, and I think that even most Catholics are not, um, you know, even aware, what is the natural thing that we're talking about? What is, what is this, what is human nature fundamentally? Um, and, 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 and we are constantly being bombarded and informed by, the metaphors we use. So when you say, you know, like got to download all this information into my head, you know, you're using an analogy to say your brain is like a computer, which it's That's not, right. you know? And so right. all of our, all of our analogies for things um, are constantly giving us a certain um, ontological view of things. And, and that is what needs to be purified both um, in order to have healthy bioethics and to have healthy environmental ethics. And, you know, the dominant worldview is of course that, 
you know, as we describe, the universe is this mindless machine. Um, and then we are this oddball alien walking around with some sort of bifurcated, you know, uh, mind and, and mechanical body. Um, yeah, you know, and all this yeah. is terribly detrimental to the faith. It's very hard to maintain the faith um, in a healthy way if that's the way you're thinking of things. So, you know, be, uh, underneath the surface of all this that we're talking about is this much more profound Catholic metaphysical um, vision of what is um, reality, and all of reality is a gift. So, you know, the yes. giftedness of reality, if you, and, and, it's, and it's a circular thing, because if you're afraid of death and you reject death, then your life itself is going to, that you're not going to learn the lesson of that contingency. Um, if you, if yeah. you can, if you can accept death and, and see that it's kind of natural and have the humility to say, well, maybe I shouldn't be a God. Uh, maybe I shouldn't live forever. Um, then you can see all of life as this, this wonderful gift. Um, and you can see the giftedness of reality and the giftedness in the other and see, um, you know, start to see that it's God upholding everything in this um, beautiful um, love towards the world. And, and I think that's what Catholics need to um, reconnect to and to deepen in, in order to have this proper vision. And of course, there are those who also re reject this mechanistic worldview who are the, you know, the eco-philosophers and whatnot, but they don't have the metaphysical depth um, they that don't. the Catholic Church has, which is which is very sad, and and some of the, these you know techno um, transhumanists you know find themselves in this category where they're environmentalists and everything, but um, everything just gets dissolved into this mode. Yeah, it does. I mean, I, I once knew uh, a feminist theologian who was also a huge environmentalist eco person, you know, mm -hmm. bought into all the sort of Gaia theory and all this kind of once stuff. Once again, a good intuition, but yeah, very good intuition. The, 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 but then we the got into foundation. a debate. We got into a debate about contraception, <laughs> actually it was a televised debate. It came out after the Obama came out with that mandate that says, you know, that uh, you have to cover contraception, health insurance. So a local station wanted a Catholic theologian to come on and say, what's wrong with the health mandate? There? Oh, boy. And so there was this um, female theologian from Arabian College. I don't know what denomination she was, but she was going on and on and on about, you know, contraception being a respecting of female bodies. And so the Catholic Church doesn't respect female bodies. And, and she had just previous been talking about environmentalism and so on. And, and I said, so you respect female bodies so much that you want to pump them full of artificial chemicals, you know, sterilants to suppress them. I said, you're all about natural rhythms and all that kind of stuff, except when it comes to the female body. And we're the ones that don't respect the female. So this is your point. This is your point about how there is this great insight there amongst the environmentalists that something is off in our mechanistic approach to nature. And we have to have a greater respect for the rhythms of nature. But then as Pope Benedict pointed out, what about the moral ecology? What about the moral environment? And those two things are intertwined, as you just exactly. pointed out. Exactly. The moral, the spiritual, the environmental are all intertwined. And yet we've got today uh, environmentalists who don't want the moral and spiritual dimensions yeah. at all. Well, they, it, 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 it's fundamental because they fundamentally cannot break out of their materialism. Um, and that's I right. That's, it, I think that's from even even though they like to use spiritual language and poetic you know, it, it, yeah. it fundamentally remains in an evolutionary materialistic um, worldview. And that's and that's the problem. It really does. A great Without a true metaphysics. You can't you can't appreciate. Which is why, I mean, the most extreme environmentalists uh, would argue for a radical depopulation 
of of the of the human population of the earth yeah. down to that they, want, that they want to get the human population. I mean, I just was reading something the other day by an environmentalist and it was being interviewed and they asked him, what do you think is the optimal human population on this planet? And he said, I don't think we should have more than 500 million people on the planet. So we have almost 8 billion now. So he's arguing for a reduction of 7.5 billion on the planet. Uh, he didn't tell us by what means he wanted to get us down to 500 yeah. million, hopefully just by maybe attrition over yeah. time. But what, what it speaks to, though, is what you were just saying. It's still a fundamentally materialist worldview. Yeah. And and there's a, there's an insight there into the fundamentally beautiful nature of, of the created world. Yeah. And, and they have a certain reverence for it. Mm-hmm. But then they turn around and say, well, they, they're, they're so misanthropic. Okay, the, the human beings are the problem here. And if we could just yeah. get rid of humans, uh, what would be to me the last laugh on someone like that would be for them to get down to their target goal of 500 million or 300 million human beings. Uh, but then for an asteroid to smash into the earth and, and lay waste to the earth and destroy just about everything, you know, yeah. uh, turn the whole planet into a molten <laughs> molten fire and all life destroyed like it almost was once. Yeah. Uh, but my, my point being that there is a romanticization yeah. of nature as well. Was, in the environmentalism, was, and nature is both, as Arnold Toynbee said, nature is both mother and monster, <clears throat> you know, and, and ancient peoples understood this in a way that modern people don't, even modern environmentalists. So, yeah, I was once climbing a mountain in Alaska uh, by myself and ran into a stranger and we were both and we decided to climb together. And he, he, he made a similar assertion to me that, you know, a few billion people just had to die off in order for, um, you know, humanity to be okay. And I suddenly got very scared and started to look around <laughs> for the, the quickest way down. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or, and, or and are you starting like, with who, me? Uh, yeah. Who's, who's, who's going to go? Um, yeah, it's very unfortunate because I think the youth, you know, if you are going to, if you look around in the world today and you look at society and you see, all of the miserableness and this is interesting because it gets back to you know the the merchant of venice starts out with antonio is depressed he is fundamentally depressed and has sees no you know meaning in his life you know if you look around the world today you look at human societies um as as a young you know person that's not connected to any religious values um and it's completely natural and i would say oh good that you identify nature with goodness um yeah. And yet that needs to be directed. And so I do think there's a great potential for an evangelization, you know, if if they could only find the creator in the midst of creation. Um, and that and that's the tragic element. This is key here. And this is where, you know, the the truth of revelation is foundationally and constitutively important here to identify uh, the true God and what the implications of that view of God, the Trinitarian God of Jesus Christ, are for how we view nature uh, as creation matters. So, for, so uh, going back to the ancient peoples I was just talking about, who viewed nature as mother and monster, uh, they didn't have ooey-gooey romantic views about nature that modern environmentalists might have. They, they had this very sober understanding with death ever present. And so what happens is, is that those elemental forces, both beneficial to humans and not beneficial for humans, engage in a kind of apotheosis. So these then get projected into the world of the divine. And the gods then become this weird admixture of good and evil. The gods can be arbitrary, morally obtuse, capricious, nasty, 
which is why so much of religion back then centered on what you might call magic or whatever, where a desire to manipulate the gods so that religion became like an ancient form of technology. You know, if, if I just toss the virgin into the volcano, then the pissed off volcano god will stop doing what what. So, you know, you give the gods something that they're just human beings writ large. You give them something that they want and they'll be placated. So mm -hmm. th that then rebounds back down into human society. And so because the gods are like this, there's a caste system here, too. These mm -hmm. sorts of evils that we encounter are not just in nature. They're in human nature and human society. And they take on an entrenched an entrenched reality, an entrenched ontology, which is why when Christ comes along and, and this vision of God comes along and just explodes. This is this is what Paul meant by destroying the principalities and powers. This is this is why the gospel was so invigorating in those first centuries uh, in the Mediterranean world, because it came as this magnificent spiritual revolution that laid waste to that entire that entire ontology of mother and monster. Let's put it that way. And, and my fear is in, yeah. in, re, in repaganizing ourselves today, but in a materialist register, we're simply going to return to the strong gods of blut and erde, of blood yeah. and soil, to the yeah. apotheosis, the apotheosis once again of our more negative impulses. And you're already beginning to see this. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you say that because, you know, both Peggy and Lewis and others, you know, have this intuition that, you know, modern man who doesn't even believe in a soul and is entirely materialistic um, is not really even available to be evangelized because he's, right. he doesn't even believe in the soul. Um, and so, so Piggy says, you know, something like you can't, um, you cannot convert someone who doesn't believe they have a soul, but you know, can you, you cannot convert a modern soul, but you can convert a pagan soul. And so there's also this you know, double-edged sword where you have this idea, well, if we could make them a little bit more pagan and a little bit more open to the spiritual dimension of reality, maybe we could um, help them see the truth about this. And what and, and the truth of the, the, the Christian God, of cre the, cre the true creator, which is, you know, a metaphysical truth that's open to anyone who's reasonable um, and, and willing to meditate on it, is that um, reality is contingent and is held in existence by a constant donation of being of, of, of right. um, existence. And if you could just um, see that and meditate on that, um, then you you're, you're halfway there. Um, you're, you're opening yourself up to, to revelation in a, in a powerful way. You certainly are. Uh, and that's why I do recommend people get your book because the, the Trinitarian metaphysical ontology, which forms the, the backbone, the spine in the book for, for a metaphysics of gift, uh, gift reception, grace redemption uh, in the natural world, the created world, I think <clears throat> forms a foundation for the only viable modern, what you might want to call environmentalism. Yeah, which, which is necessary to, to face down the, the huge, you know, um, yeah. uprising in modern environmentalism. That's going to be the new thing moving forward, climate change yes. and all this. So now the, trouble an is, the trouble is that there are precious few people that can get their minds around the kind of Trinitarian metaphysical theology yeah. uh, that I did in my book, you do in yours, you know, Schindler did, does in his and so on. I'm not saying they're not valuable. Yeah, yeah. We need to keep writing that kind of stuff, obviously. Yeah. Uh, but but the average person who is not innocent into dense metaphysical speculation 
and Trinitarian theology, I would say that if you're listening to this, the best way then to, in a sense, evince what we're talking about here today in your own life is to live to live this pattern of uh, of gift and reception to 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 develop patterns of contemplation. We I began by asking, how do we avoid getting sucked into this matrix? Well, the, the technological matrix that forces itself upon us. Well, we have to first, as Balthazar pointed out, we have to first and foremost develop a, a contemplative uh, stance of reception before the mystery of God. And that means prayer. That means taking time to pray, to meditate, to contemplate, to read the scriptures, uh, to read a little theology, to, to you know, think about these things deeply not to process them. That's once again, one of those metaphors you were talking about drawn from the computer world. I used to say that to my students, don't tell me you're processing this. Tell me you're going to contemplate it, meditate upon it, think about it. And then when you develop this contemplative stance, and I think we all need to become contemplatives today. We all need to become mystics in, in this contemplative sense of seeing everything around us as a precious gift. And as soon as we begin to see the giftedness of everything, including our own extremely unlikely existence, we are then more prone to seeing its givenness as something, something that we shouldn't goof around with yeah. okay, in yeah, these constitutive ways. That's beautifully put. Yeah. And I, th I think that it, it is fundamentally simple and, and the simple, you know, my, my grandma, you know, the farmer down the street, yeah. well, not in your case, because you're, you know, an erudite <laughs> farmer, but, you know, it, 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 it's intuitively understood. And what metaphysics does is try to put that into words. And that's why it can sometimes seem so dense, but it's a fundamentally human and very simple intuition um, that God is real, that God is, you know, up, you know, um, everything depends on him. He's holding it all in existence. And that um, we, the proper attitude towards him has to be that openness and receptivity. Um, and fundamentally, love is the response that, and gratitude is the response that that, that should generate. But uh, I will also say that I'm, I'm, I'm currently working on a book that would be a more popular um, presentation yeah. of these ideas. So hopefully that would come to fruition. Well, you know, it, it's one of the reasons why I started blogging and doing these things you know i've written erudite things you know read by read by some people all right but i felt like okay maybe now it's the time to translate some of this stuff and yeah, uh, into yeah. more anyway Great. let's let's leave your last message there the, 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 the about love uh, as as our ending point we've been going for little over an hour and a half so that's great most of my podcasts are only like an hour and 15 hour and 10 or so so you know Obviously, we had something to talk about today, so that's great. <laughs> Maybe we'll, we'll, we can talk again. Uh, this doesn't have to be the end at all. So I want to thank you very much. Thanks, Michael, Dr. Michael Taylor, for coming on uh, the show today. I thought this was a great conversation. And for the, you know, for the viewers and listeners, you know, I mean, Michael and I are old friends. We've known each other for, what, 10 years, 12 years, maybe longer. We'll go back. I don't know. Yeah, you, yeah, you visited the farm, your lovely yeah. wife, Kat, Cassie. Uh, so God bless both of you. God bless everything Thank you're you. doing there at Thanks Thomas so Moore. Give my give my best to Father Michael Kerper up there in Nashua. Big Will shout do. out to Father Mike. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And uh, and thank you, Michael. God bless you.